What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest this week is truly a legend. The soundtrack of my growing up, the one and only Cousin Bruce. Well, thank you. What a lovely introduction. Well, so nice to, to not only hear you, right, but also to see you are a pleasure. And thank you so much for the invitation. Really do appreciate it. I got to tell you what a huge influence you have. I mean, I'm sure you know you hear this all the time, but when I went to college, I had a radio show and I immediately called myself Cousin Bobby. And there are people to this day who say, hey, cuz. So this is not something, you know, that I'm blowing smoke. This is a real thing. So were you always Brucey? No. My parents uh, at times, especially when they needed a babysitter and couldn't get one, had other names for me. <laughs> I don't want to say what they were, but it, yeah, it's, my name is Brucey. It's always been Brucey, yeah? Brucey. And, and so Brucey. when you've been on the radio from the moment you were on radio, it was also Brucey? Yeah. Well, no, that's not true. No. Uh, my real name is Bruce Morrow. Most think most people think my name is Bruce Cousins. You see, they think my last name is Cousins. Uh, no, it's, it's Bruce Morrow. I got my name, actually, uh, I was on WINS in New York City. Would you like to hear a nice story? It's kind of yes. a fun story. It's, it's fun. Uh, so I'm in the studio. And a security guard, in those days, we were allowed to have people come up. We didn't think they were going to commandeer the radio station. So so he brings in this little silver-haired lady. She walks and he says, Mr. Morrow, is this all right to bring her in? I said, this is pre-cousin Brucey. And uh, I said, hey, please bring her in. I love people. I, I like people. She opens, he opens the door. And this little silver-haired, twinkly-eyed lady walks in. She locks on my eyes immediately, Bob. Cousin Bob, if I may. And, Absolutely. Uh, when somebody locks on eyes, like I'm doing to yours right now, right? <laughs> we're, we're, we're on a screen. Uh, they get you. That's the, the a big secret of life. 
when you want to talk to somebody and you want something, lock on their eyes, not their nose, not their mouth, hit the eyes immediately. So she locks on my eyes and she says to me, quote, excuse me, uh, sir, and I knew she didn't know who I was. She wasn't interested in hearing Elvis or Jerry Lee Lewis or anybody else. She said to me, uh, do you believe we're all related? And I said, uh-oh, I'm a Brooklyn kid, so I know somebody's after something, right? Money, 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 money. So I said, yes, I do believe we're all related, and I do believe that, Bob, right, somewhere along the line. And uh, she said, well, listen, I'm broke. And I said, hold on one second, ma'am, and I queue up my record. In those days, we played these little black things with holes in them, and I used to queue up a record because we didn't have any digital starts or anything. And I said, okay. She said, well, cousin, I'm broke. Lend me 50 cents to get home. And I looked at her and she had these smiling eyes. And I said, sure. I gave her 50 cents, right? And she said, thanks, cousin. Talk to you. She leaves. I never see her again. That night in the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, I lived in Brooklyn in those days. I was on the way home. And uh, in the middle of that tunnel, I hear cousin, cousin, cousin Brucey. That's it. I got it. I got my shtick. I got my handle. The next morning I uh, go in. And I speak to the program director, and he says, are you crazy? You, I, I, you can't call yourself Cousin Bruce. This is the Big Apple, man. This is New York City. This is not Fargo. This is not Morgantown, West Virginia. This is New York City. Forget it. I said, sir, let me ask you something. When you were a kid, not so long ago, I was smart enough to say that to him, to butter him up a little bit. Uh, who did you like to go to? Didn't you like to go to your the homes of your cousins? They had the best toys, and your aunt and uncle would always treat you nice with food and, and snacks. He said, yeah, I guess, all right. He said, I'll tell you what, kid. Do this sparingly tonight. Don't overdo it, because if you overdo it, you're going to be in trouble deep. Well, that night, Bob, I went on the air. I don't think there was more than three and a half words that went by without me saying cousin. <laughs> I cousined him. I even went into the bathroom. I cousined him. Yeah, I did everything. I didn't stop. That next morning at 6 o'clock, I get a call. It's the program director, and he says to me, Bruce. I said, yes. Get your posterior midsection in here. Quick. Get it in here. Now, you're in trouble. I get scared stiff. I call my father. Now, I've never been fired. I thought maybe he would hit me. And this guy would smack me or something. I didn't know what they were going to do. So my dad goes in with me. who's a street smart guy. Grew up in East New York. And uh, we go in together. And the uh, so lead says to me, sit over there, Bruce. And I'm scared stiff. My father sits next to his desk and says, well, what's the problem? He said, I told your son not to overdo it. And I'm going to tell you something. He didn't stop last night. They cousin. I said, well, is that okay? He said, I want to show you something. <laughs> he then, this is funny. He opens, it wasn't funny at the time. He opens his desk drawer and he pulls out hundreds of yellow envelopes, hundreds, and they're spilling out of his hands all over his desk. Now these yellow envelopes were a precursor to the email craze, right? They were called Western Union telegrams. He received hundreds of Western Union telegrams wanting Cousin Brucey. So my father smartly says, well, what's wrong with that? He says, I told him not to. I'm firing him on the spot. So my father looks at him. He says, but I'm going to put him on a seven-year contract immediately. That's, <laughs> cousin, cousin Bruce, that's a long story, but Cousin Brucey was born, Bob. Okay, that's good. Okay, you are such a character. You know, a lot of people, they're on mic or they're on stage. Personality is totally different. But by, we got on and you were immediately Cousin Brucey. No, there was no, there, you know, can I tell you something? I Maybe I shouldn't say this to you because I know you're going to tell everybody. I'm told that you you tell what you want to tell, which is good. So do I. Uh, there is no Cousin Brucey. It's Bruce. It's Bruce. Bruce Morrow. Bruce Morrow 
is Cousin Brucey. There is no comic character. It, it's me. What can I tell you? I uh, I sleep this way. I talk in my sleep this way. I go to the bathroom in this way. I take showers. I get up, and I'm me. Now, am I unhappy at times? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm just like everybody else. I have my moments. But generally, I'm a pretty happy camper. I love life. And, Bob, I love what I am doing. Underline, bold, underline, I love what I'm doing. I'm happy. Okay, so you grew up in Brooklyn. Yes. <laughs> Why did I hesitate? Yes. Okay. And were your parents, were they born in America? Yes, my parents were born in America. My grandparents, one was Viennese. Huh? That's why I waltz so well, I guess. And my grandma was Russian. Uh, but my parents were both born here. Yes. And uh, what did your parents or your uh, do for a living? Well, my father uh, stole automobile caps, uh, hemp caps. And my, no, <laughs> my dad was in the uh, garment business. He manufactured and designed children's clothing. And my mother was a Brooklyn housewife, took care of the family, shopped. And she was terrific. Never really had an occupation. My dad was the the breadwinner, the rye breadwinner. And then how many kids in the family? My brother and myself. And which one's older? Uh, well, I'm younger, but he's he's younger. And explain figure that. that now me. you figure that out? I said, I'm younger, but he's younger. I'm, oh, you know, I got it now. I got it. I misheard <laughs> it first. What does what his life look like? Well, Bobby is uh, in marketing. My brother Bob's in marketing. He's, I guess, semi-retired now. He's uh, down in Florida. See, I don't have the word retired in my vocabulary. I refuse. I don't like the what I call the R word. I believe as long as you have energy and you have desire and you have an enjoyment of what you're doing, you should do it. You should do it. I mean, if you can't get out of bed, you are uh, having a problem. That's another story. But I speak to people all the time on the air who should not be retired. They're bored and they're angry. They're hostile. And I don't believe people should retire unless they absolutely have to. Now, weren't there moments, though, when you were not on the air, you were on the business side of it? Yes, I think you've done some research. I'm getting a feeling you Actually, know more. No, I really haven't. Listen, I know your story, you know, because I know, I know Bob Sherman, a friend of mine, hooked me up with him. And then, of course, you work with Sillerman. So, you know, since you're an you know, on-air guy, I was wondering what motivated you and how you felt when you were not in front of a mic. Yeah, well, I was never really thrilled not being in front of a mic. Uh, I became a businessman. Bob Sillerman and I, we lost him about a year or so ago, and uh, he and I uh, formed the Silliman Morrow Broadcast Group. And uh, we bought radio stations and a couple of television stations. And I used to fly in a twin engine something or other, uh, a Lego, I don't know what it was. And uh, we had a pilot, and he'd fly me to different my different radio stations with Bob. And every day I'd be in a different market, I'd go on the air, and then after the air I'd go sell. Because, you know, people love to meet Characters like us, they right. they enjoy it. People in the, you know the business wheel, they they enjoy you know saying, "Hey, how you doing, Brucey? Heard you last night." They they get a kick out of it. So I used to fly to different markets almost every day. I did that for about seven years. We we garnered about uh, well seven major radio stations. It became many more than that. A couple television stations, and uh, I enjoyed it very much. I used to sit and I do my shows on each station. 
that I'd sit in the office and the, the kids would come in. Oh, pardon me for saying kids, but these are the people who work for me, young, usually young guys or gals. And they'd sit with me and they'd make excuses why I caught them making a mistake, right? And I'd look them in the eye. This is Brucey now in his jacket and a tie, which is not me. And uh, I'd say to him, listen, don't try to bowl me. I invented what you're telling me. Don't tell me. <laughs> don't tell me that. That's my story. I help invent that stuff. So this is what I want you to do. I want you to make your mistakes. Feel good about that. But Lord help you if you do it again. I want you to correct your mistakes. So I became a, a business executive. And after a while, I don't know, I, I just didn't didn't enjoy it. I, I missed my microphones. So I continued doing a lot of micro work on our own radio stations, selling and, and they're going on the air. And then one day, Joe McCoy and Rod Carlaco, these are two executives at CBS FM, called me. And he said to me, you know, Bruce, because it's time to come home, time to come home to New York. And I said, well, I can. I own uh, 80 radio stations and some television properties. I have some problems. So he says, no, you got to come home. So they came out. They came out to my station in Randolph, New Jersey, and we found a little sandwich shop and we sat down and we talked. And of course, it didn't take much to sell me. I'm a sucker. I mean, I'm an easy mark. I, I really missed Bob being on the air. And uh, they talked me, or well, actually, maybe I talked them. I said, maybe, uh, how about once a week? No, that's too much. How about once a month? So I did it for once a month on CBS FM. Uh, the once a month became twice a month, thrice a month, and then quadruple a month. And I, I just fell in love with it again. And then Bob and I, after a while, uh, we decided to sell. It was during the 80s, I believe when it was still time to sell. That's why you see me smile, by the way. I know. I was going to ask you that next. <laughs> That's why I'm still a character. Let me tell you, we did Knockwood very, very well. And, uh, I'm, you know, just everything worked out for me. But my love for broadcasting, I believe, is the most important part of my life. I love what I do. I, I really adore this audience. And when I get on the mic, Bob, hope I'm not answering all your questions, but when you, I get on the microphone, I feel them. Uh, I'm not talking through a mic right now, uh, this blue, white snowbird or whatever it's called. I, I'm talking directly to people at their homes. I know that I'm in bed with people. I know that I'm showering with people. I know that I'm taking a bath with people. I'm shopping. I'm in cars. I'm just walking with people. And I feel it. I feel it in my in my heart. I feel it in my gut. And it comes across. I forget where I am. I forget that I'm in a studio, that all these, these Sennheiser things and wires and all kinds of glass between me. It doesn't matter. I'm, I'm at home. I'm very much at home. Now, I'm not going to answer the next question. Let me see you answer it because I want to continue on this. Well, okay. Well, you know, you're doing telling great stories, but do you need the audience to complete you? Or without the audience, do you feel like something is missing and you get depressed? Well, I need an audience. There's no doubt about it. I have to feel the audience. Now, how do you feel an audience? I mean, that's something that I'm God, it's God-given. It's something that's in my soul. It's in my heart. I know they're there. Uh, for obviously, the physical reaction, telephones, emails now, right? And uh, Twitters and Twatters and Modders, whatever they're doing today. But I know the audience is there because as soon as I say something, there is a physical reaction. But besides that, Wait, wait, a physical reaction in you? No, physical reaction from the audience to me. Okay. I mean, you see it, the screens light up, the telephones light up. Uh, 
I'll tell you something I'm very proud of, and maybe you'll get a kick out of this. I broke the telephone system last Saturday. <laughs> I love that. I swear, And I always say that to people. Come on, call me. Let's break the system. It broke. We had an overload. It was wonderful. You know, years ago when I was on WABC, you know, I, I left WABC, oh, gosh, about 46 years ago, the last time I was on besides now. And uh, we used to, they threatened to shut down the system, the telephone system, I'd say bi-monthly. Every time I'm on, I'd uh, get telephone calls. And then sometimes there'd be this surge and it would break down the exchange. Today's, today's, today, you don't have to break down exchange, but systems do get into ill repair. And I did that last Saturday. So the question, the answer is I feel them because I have a physical feel, telephones, emails, et cetera. And I know this. I know this in my body. I can feel it. Yes, but do you need it to complete you? Yes, absolutely. I am happiest when I have an audience. I love being on the stage. I'm a ham. I love it. I love the feeling. I, feel, I like the feeling of making people happy. I know they smile. Some people probably get mad at me. One of them, they say, I want us to be quiet. Knock it off. But I know that. But 99.9% of the people are loving what they're hearing. I'm, I'm reaching them. I'm crossing that bridge. So it makes me happy. I love to be in front of an audience on a stage show. I love doing Broadway. I love live television. But my favorite is what we're doing now. I love being on the air. I like I like my radio. I love I love doing talk shows. You know, my shows, Bob, <laughs> this is all with one breath. You know that, right? Since yes. we started. <laughs> uh, my shows have changed amazingly. Uh, when I first started, uh, obviously, it was very mechanical. I was in Bermuda. Uh, my first job when I graduated from New York University, where I founded the radio station, by the way, I went to Bermuda. I sent out my uh, my demos. So I spent a year in Bermuda, and I came back and had different jobs and became a producer and everything. But when I went on the air uh, in the old days, WABC and, and uh, even CBS FM, it was really uh, music, news, weather. I did j- uh, jingles. I did uh, telephone uh, uh, exchanges, but I it wasn't really a talk type show. It has evolved. It has metamorphosed. Metamorphosed to a bad word. Into uh, you'll edit that. I know you won't, but it's okay. Uh, it has changed into a variety show. Today, it is no longer uh, music, time, and weather. It is now Brucey and variety and music, and people want to hear ideas. The audience have been, has become so amazingly hyper-sophisticated that they demand certain content. And playing records as a jukebox is not enough. And giving them a weather break once in a while with a temperature reading is not enough. They want to hear ideas. They want to hear other people. They want to hear exchanges like you do. You are a communicator. I have become a communicator, and I'm very proud of that. I love to talk. And the the... Connection I have, and there's a big word with me, connection, capital C underlined, I bold, with my audience is amazing what has developed over the past many years. So I have this connection, and I've learned how to use it. Well, it was easy for me to learn because it's me. Okay. Let's go back to Brooklyn. What kind of kid were you? Were you a loner? Were you the leader of the band? You were a member of the group? Well, I'm going to shock you now. Maybe not. You probably noticed. I was a shy kid. I was always kind of a semi-leader because I was always big. 
I was always the tallest in my class, or one of them anyhow. I was kind of shy. In class, uh, I would make a deal with the teacher not to call me. I'd get my Bs and my Cs, C pluses, but I didn't want to stand up in front of class. I was shy. I was a very shy kid. One day, a very astute teacher, my English teacher, Mrs. Freilisher, and I believe it was at PS206 in Brooklyn, New York. I love that, love that school. Uh, asked me to try out for a hygiene play. Now, you're probably too young to remember the word hygiene. Not that you don't have hygiene. I didn't say that. So don't go after me, right? I didn't say that. Uh, we, we used to have hygiene plays because in those days, we couldn't have sex education. It was not permitted, the word uh, high, uh, sex. Or maybe it was education. So we had hygiene plays. And one day I did finally, she convinced me to try out. And I won the part of a cavity. <laughs> Are you laughing at me? All right. I won the part of That's a cavity. That's a whole part. Yeah. And it's a good line. A lot of people still think I am one. And I, used to get, I was on that stage that day. And I don't forget it. This is in my heart and my body. And they had me dressed up as a big tooth with a black spot somewhere on top. And I sang something like... Uh, uh, I never brush my teeth. Mommy doesn't let me brush my teeth. You know, I kind of think. And something happened to me on, on the stage that day. I looked out of the little window, you know, the little window in that bad tooth. And I saw the audience laughing. And I felt the heat and the warmth of the audience coming at me. I never stopped. I never stopped from that day because I knew this is what I wanted to do. I uh, stopped my, uh, I was going to maybe study medicine, right? I was maybe going to become, uh, I didn't know about being an astronaut, but I wanted to be a pilot. I never thought of this. And on that stage, the heat and warmth and reception of that audience, I realized what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And here we are today. Yeah. So you were in high school. Were you in the school plays? Yeah. Doing school plays. And in uh, what they call public school, too, as I said, PS206. So it started really in elementary school. And then I graduated to high school. And while I was in high school, I uh, won an audition to what they call the Old City Radio Workshop. And that's where my radio career really started. Well, but, but, but let's, let's slow down for a second. Since you love the heat of the audience, did you contemplate going to Broadway or being in the movies or was it always radio? No, at one time, I always liked radio because it was fun. It seemed to be an easier way of life. But I went to drama school. My girlfriend's mother convinced me to go to drama school, and I was going to become an actor. I uh, enjoyed being on the stage, and I realized pretty quickly that I don't think an actor's life was for me. Hi, diddly D. No, it was not for me. Uh, when I got to the last part of high school, uh, elementary school, radio and television pointed its way to me. It was pretty obvious what I wanted to do. Okay, so you're talking about the all-city also radio workshop. Yeah, in uh, Brooklyn, New York, or the New York City Board of Education system, they used to have, I hope they still have it, because this is where I got my education, really, honestly, and everything. Uh, I won the audition, and I stayed with them for about three and a half years. This They had their own radio station. It was called WNYE-FM, WNYE-FM, and it was uh, housed in studios at Brooklyn Technical High School, downtown Brooklyn. And I stayed there for three and a half years. I did shows. I did acting. Okay, I but did... just where could one hear that station? Today? No, no. no back know. then, was it over the air? Watch? Oh, was no. it a wired situation? No, no, no. That was oh, that was some. That was later. It was an over the air broadcast station. I don't remember ninety 
probably the lower 92.1 or something. Uh, that's where they have, you know, the Board of Education frequency. And uh, we were actually on the air. And I played, I remember Paul Bunyan. I played all different kind of dramatic parts. I wasn't doing music in those days. I did reporting. I did uh, poetry readings. But my biggest advancement was playing Paul Bunyan. I, it was me. It was not, it was, it was typecast. <laughs> okay. This was while you were in high school. Yeah. And so then you decide to go to college. This is a business where many people did not go to college. How did you end up going to college? Well, my parents offered me a car. <laughs> that was a little incentive, right? They offered me a car if I went to college because I wanted to go out. I wanted to go on the stage. I wanted to study a little more acting. I still had the acting bug. And I wanted to go on radio because I had that bug too. But they convinced me that college would be the right way to go. So I remember I was the recipient of a beautiful two-door, uh, called, it was a Ford, a two-door Ford. And it was green and white cream topped. And it was a beautiful car. Had an AM radio in it. It was brand new? Oh, yeah. Oh my! Wow, my, that's quite an parents, incentive. Mario was. My parents were really great. I mean, that was an expensive car in those days. Probably cost at least uh, $300. I don't know. <laughs> Probably more like 2500 Okay, so you start school where? College. College. Uh, I, now you're going to embarrass me. See, you know, you are a very smart, shy guy. You Sly guy. I know what you're doing here. All right. I went well, to what Brooklyn. am I doing? Tell well, me. I, you, I know what you're doing. I went to Brooklyn College, right? I lasted there for six months. You're going to embarrass me now, but I'm going to. Now I'm, I'm in it. I got to tell it. I went to Brooklyn College for six months. For some reason, I couldn't find the classes. <laughs> <laughs> they disappeared. Uh, yeah, they, they kept moving the classes. So I, I left, obviously, or. Uh, Maybe I was requested to leave. I don't know. It was maybe a combination of two, Bob, cousin Bob. Um, I started talking to people who went to New York University, and it sounded good. It sounded like I wanted to do something there. So I enrolled at NYU, and while I was there in the first year, I decided they needed a radio station. And we didn't have one. We had a radio club. You know, it was held in a an ersatz studio, and we had a microphone and uh a little control room, and we practiced radio, but it wasn't going anywhere, but into uh, somebody's web core or something, or wire recorder in those days. So I decided I was going to go, uh, this is this is typical me now, I was going to go see a dean. I looked up the dean, my dean, and uh, I was going to go ask him to get me a radio station for the college. We needed a radio station. It really was important, part of the community. So it was snowing. It was a bad, snowy, nasty day, muddy snow, slush. And I trapped into uh, the dean's office with my galoshes. Now, in those days, Bob, you probably remember, we used to wear these overshoes called galoshes. They oh, were yeah. Terrible, terrible. I mean, you know, forget it. So I went in, and I didn't take my galoshes off, and I, I brought in a lot of slush with me. He looked down at his beautiful new carpet, and I knew right away he looked back at me, once again, the eyes, he was not happy. He says, what can I do for you, Mr. Morrow? And I said, well, sir, I want to build a radio station. We need a radio station. The community needs one. Uh, the college needs one. So he looked at me and said, you know what? I think it's a good idea. I'm going to get you $28. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. He didn't want me. I mean, I messed up his office. He gave me uh, 
eventually $28 through professor, my professors. I went and bought wire. I bought a used Dynavox phonograph, and we had a microphone. And I formed a club of people who really wanted to be on the radio. I took the wire from the back of the console, dropped it four stories uh, out a window, and I connected it with solder to the back of two radios in a lounge in the green room down there. Upstairs, we had a microphone and a Dynavox. I went over to London Records and RCA, and I begged them for their catalogs. I had, uh, you know, classical music, and I had semi-pop music, had all that. Well, we started doing shows. We did news, we did music, and it went to the four, four stories below to two radios. But we were on the air. That's how it started. That's my career. That's how the career started. I knew that you were going to get this out of me. Okay, and then was that the extent of the radio station during your whole college career, or did they ultimately uh, get over-the-air broadcast? Yeah, they did. They did, uh, what was it called, Carrier Current? I think they did Carrier Current. After right. a while, yeah, Carrier Current is not really over-the-air. We never had a, a transmitter, so to speak. But we somehow, the technicians, without we hired a technician, he, he uh cabled us into the electrical circuits throughout the college, and the electrical circuits carried this uh, the signal. So we were on the air. I started selling time to local uh, sponsors. I got a lot wow. of records. We had newscasters. I mean, it grew. I had a radio station, and it, it worked. And today, that radio station, uh, WNYU-FM, is on the air and gets all kinds of awards. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so what do you study in college? <laughs> uh, I studied uh, radio. I uh, I very rarely went to class. The uh, My professors all excused me because they knew what I was doing. And everybody wanted a radio station, albeit even though it was only two speakers at the time. Uh, I was kind of excused. So my uh, college career was really building that radio station. But I learned finance. I learned history. I learned geography. I learned sociology. I learned psychology. I had the best the best education of my life. My parents paid a lot of money for that education, but it was well worthwhile, right? But you but you did graduate. You did get a degree. Oh, oh you start somewhere behind me or something. In fact, I even have a, a an honorary degree. I have a PhD. Or, you know, it's Dr. Cousin Bruce, you know. No, I'm very proud that I graduated at NYU. It was tough at times. It was tough at times because my head was always outside the classroom, wanting to do things. But I did it. I graduated. And uh, I'm very proud of that. Very proud of NYU. Really. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. So you, you graduated. What was the next step in your career? Well, when I graduated, I sent out demo tapes. I don't know if you remember those days, but we didn't have, uh, you know, we didn't have uh, the internet or anything. We had to send tapes out. So I uh, sent out eight tapes under the, under the supervision of my professors, Professor Falk, Professor Emerson. Funny, while I'm talking, I'm remembering names here. And I sent these tapes out to different radio stations. Now, I've always, Bob, I've always wanted to be in warm climate. I don't like being cold, right? I don't like being, I don't like to go to the state. And so I sent them out to warm climates, which is a very bad thing to do because you're really narrowing the pickings. So out of about eight tapes, I got four or five back that said, kid, you're very, very nice. Go into your father's business, all right? Forget it. And then a couple of them came back very positively. One was uh, in Panama City, Florida. Perfect. Nice weather, you know, a little cool once in a while. Nice weather. And one day, the owner of the radio station called. And once again, my dad was standing by. Dad! And he's on the phone. I'm on the other phone. And uh, he gets on him. Yes, he said, this is Mr. So-and-so of uh, whatever the radio station was. And still there, by the way. Panama City, Florida. We'd like to offer your son a job. So my father answered. I was like, throat stopped. And he said, yeah, well, what's the job? Well, we'd like to give him a job. And... uh, He'd work in both our businesses. And my father said, oh, really? What, both businesses? Yes. Well, he said, he was very cagey, the guy. He said, he'd be on the air for about four hours. He'll do a two-hour show, and then he'll go out and sell for two hours. You know, small stations, right? We'll pay him $85 a week, and we'll help him get settled and everything, 85 a week. And then my father knew something was wrong, and he said, okay, that sounds all right for this time, because he was going to supplement my salary. What's the other business? My father, very shrewd, once again. So the, the owner of the station says, well, Mr. Morrow, we also own a car wash. The <laughs> son was, what are you laughing at? That's serious stuff. Listen, how would you like that? He said, he'll work four hours in our car wash. Now, uh, my dad and I looked at each other and we said, no, no, I wasn't going to carry 800 towels down to Florida. So we turned that one down. About a week later, Bob, I received a call from, I guess, the station of my dreams, ZBM, or as we say, ZBM, ZBM in Bermuda. Down in Bermuda, paradise for two, I met my loved one deep in the blue. Remember that song? All right. Anyway, you do not recognize. All right. I go down to Bermuda, and uh, I really had my education there, Bob. This is where I learned radio. You know, you can stay in college and high school and read books 
and go to uh, broadcast school all your life. But until you're on the air professionally, until you're on that radio and doing it, and you feel that feeling in your belly, and you're so scared, right, because it's so new, you don't know what to do. That's when the education began. So one year and a little bit, a couple months in Bermuda, and I, I did everything from, well, I, I brought rock and roll music down to that quiet island. They used to call me the hammer, by the way. I still have listeners down there that write to me, email me. They love it. Uh, the hammer, because they never heard anybody speak with the cacophony of the music that we were playing. Suddenly they were hearing Fats Domino and Elvis Presley and the Everly Brothers and yet that whole thing, Drifters. And they were getting a whole new beat, this once quiet Calypsonian island. And the hammer was on the radio with them. I did shows. I did stage shows. I uh, started a show called The Search Party. And that's where I got in trouble. I mixed black and white audience. Once again, I love my audience. I was dead so I was really wanting to have an audience in front of me. Even in those days, I knew it. And uh, they didn't like this too much. They didn't like the idea of mixing uh, audiences. So at night, I used to get threatening, uh, when I was on the radio, I used to get threatening phone calls. It got so bad. And this is the old days of Bermuda. It's not today. Today, things have changed. I used to walk home with a lead pipe at the ready in my pocket, real big pipe. And I used to put it under my shirt. Cause, and every time a palm tree would sway, I'd jump 10 feet in the air, wait, getting ready for something. So they threatened me, right? Until I got home and I used to get into my little bed that I paid, I think, uh, $90 a month. I was on the eve of a, on the eve of a roof. And if I got up, I'd smash my head on it. But I got to tell you something. That was probably the most important, poignant part of my uh, education, my radio education. I left there. Oh, wait, wait, before you go there. Yeah. What's, what's happening with you and romance along the road here? What? Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Oh wait! I'm not going to talk about that. You got to You already got me in trouble. I can't. I can't afford a divorce this year. What? <laughs> no, I guess. Uh, are you? Did you have dates in high school and uh, college? Did you have relationships? Sure. Oh, absolutely. Okay. I had a lot of girlfriends. I thought you were talking about one specific one in Bermuda. And no, I, I was not. I you know had my research does not go that oh, deep. Thank goodness. <sighs> Hold on a second. <sighs> okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, of course. I'm, you know, I was a normal, so you did have one. Kid. You did have one specific person in Bermuda. You were not homesick. No, well, I was homesick. I was homesick, but there were times it was not homesick because uh, we were making nice. We had a good time. My uh, my two door Ford, which I had uh, pre Bermuda, was now being used for another kind of education, and uh, <laughs> I didn't know there was a back seat there. <laughs> okay, but you took the Ford to Bermuda too? No, no, no. I said okay. I used the Ford pre-Bermuda before you talked to me about girlfriends. Okay. <laughs> okay, so then how do you get out of Bermuda? Well, that's kind of a story that 20th Century Fox bought in my book, all right? And uh, that, was, that, that was almost a movie. Uh, there was a church in Bermuda outside of Hamilton that burned down. And this church was in dire needs of funds. They had to rebuild. So I decided very wisely, I think to this day, to hold a big record hop and a dance at a huge hall in Hamilton Harbor. So we hired this hall and could have held thousands of people. And uh, I was going to raise money to re help rebuild the church, which I did. I raised some funds. 
Uh, after this was over, I was invited to leave. I was invited to leave Bermuda. Now, once again, I love Bermuda, and I've been back a couple times since. Uh, at this time, Bermuda was kind of living in a different world. They weren't in today's world. They really didn't. Uh, I, I think if you weren't uh, uh, British, uh, Anglo, a Protestant, um, you were not acceptable. They uh, had a lot of different laws, which have changed. You know, So I was right there in the middle of all this stuff. So as I said, I got a letter and I suggested that I leave. Okay, so let's, let's, let, let's, let's hold back for a second. To what degree have you encountered anti-Semitism in your career? Uh, very little to none, honestly. No, I've discovered, uh, I've, I've encountered anti-humanism many times. I've never had the unhappiness of anti-Semitism or anti-anything. The only anti I really had was in Bermuda. And that was just not nice. It wasn't right. Okay, so if you were raising money for the church, what was their problem with you? Well, I was helping... Uh, a black church. It was a uh, a black church. Ah, uh, see, uh -huh. that's what that's... happened. So they were. So not you're invited happy. to leave. Yeah, invited to leave, and uh, I accepted it. I left, and uh, I went home, and uh, I got a job in Miami. I probably had another job before that. I know it's all getting all kind of mushy now. Uh, I get a job in Miami, and I go to WINZ in Miami, uh, broadcasting from high atop the beautiful Biscayne Bay overlooking beautiful, beautiful Florida. So I, I was in the, there for WINZ for about a year. One day I'm walking on Biscayne Boulevard. Now here, speak about things that you never forget. I suddenly see Santa Claus under a palm tree, it's now December, Christmas time, wearing Bermuda shorts and a t-shirt. And I said, boy, you're out of here. That was it, <laughs> I had it up. I want to see a Santa Claus in shorts. You know, so it was time to leave. And I left and uh, I got jobs. Uh, I got as producer's jobs. and I went to WINS in New York okay, City okay. as a producer. For when you, how long were you off the air from Bermuda to your next job? Maybe three months. Pretty quick. You ever think it might not work? No, I never did. I always had, you know, I'm very lucky. I have great faith in me. I believe in what I do. I, and I ain't afeard. I'm not afraid. I'm not a, a scaredy cat. Like, I'm a Brooklyn kid. Nothing scares me. Okay, so when you leave Miami, do you continue to stay on the air? Or are there times when you're behind the mic? No, behind the mic. Uh, one of the first jobs, I was at uh, Mutual Broadcasting as a producer. And then fate stepped in. This you're going to like. I am hired at WINS. My dad, parents, my mother had a friend who... Parents of a young lady who worked at WINS. In those days, WINS was music. It wasn't uh, an old uh, talk or old news station. Right. So they, they hired me as a producer once again. Fate. Here it is. Bum, 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 bum. Dum, bum, bum, bum. Fate steps in. There's a strike. AFTRA calls a strike. Now, what happens when there's a strike? All of the on-air personalities leave. They go out and they pick it or they just leave. And uh, then the other unions like, uh, what was it, uh, uh, Nabit or something, I believe it was Nabit, the engineering unit, they could not cross the picket line. So we were without operating personnel. So what do you do? 
Well, as a, you know, a, a broadcaster, you do what comes naturally. You get everybody that works for you that's non-union and you put them on the air and all the ancillary jobs. That's what you do. So they knew I had experience. They put me on the air. Okay, but did your the people broadcasting were on strike, did they see you as a scab or did they accept Well, you? let's put it this way. At first, well, that was at, that's after the fact, but I went on the air, so just no preceding that. I went on the air, and I stayed on the air for quite some time. Cousin Brucey was born on the air. That's what happened. My enthusiasm, my energy was now developing, and they kept me on the air. Now, when the strike ended, they gave me a contract. I stayed on the air. I went on the air. Uh, the union members, well, at first they were kind of cold, I remember. But after a while, they warmed up. I'm a very kissy-huggy guy. And they saw I was a young guy, young kid, right? I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was doing what I was instructed to by executives. So I had no choice, either that or I was going to be fired. So I went on the air. So after a while, they, they warmed up to me. Right. How long was the strike? Oh, I don't know. It, it was a, a pretty good one. It was a pretty long strike. I mean, it wasn't it, years or anything. So I think right. several months. Okay, so what year are we in? All right, now you're going to have to use your research knowledge. Wait, I really don't. I, I, my I don't research know. is my whole life, but it's uh, obviously pre-WABC. Oh, let me yeah, this is way yeah, oh, wait. Okay, let me, let me switch it a little bit because something you've mentioned, you have a love for being for performing. You like the connection with your audience. To what degree was the music important to you? At that time, absolutely everything. The music, I believe, was my connection. The music was my absolute, absolute bridge to that audience. I was playing that music, and I sounded like that music because I learned how to sound like that music from Alan Freed, who was my mentor back in the old days. Alan Freed, probably the granddaddy of Top 40 and rock and roll radio. When I was a kid, when I was in high school, I used to go once in a while up to WINS where he was on came out of Cleveland and came to WNS, pressed my nose against the glass. And one day he noticed me because I came up pretty often and he signaled me to come in with his hand. Come on in. And he went in and he says, kid, you like this? I said, yes, sir. And he says, don't do it. Go into your father's business. It's boring. <laughs> boring. And you know something? Thank God I didn't listen to him, right? I was so enamored because this man sounded like rock and roll, but I sounded like it. And the music to answer your question was the entire absolute bridge to where I am today. Okay. Now, Alan Freed ultimately went up the river as a result of payola. To what degree did payola permeate the business back then? Oh, completely. But fortunately for me, I was a kid. Uh, I took payola once, and I'm going to admit it to you. Now, you're going to be shocked. Are you ready for this? I don't okay, want you to lay get it in on trouble. Me. All right. I accepted a cherry and an apple pie from somebody once. <laughs> he came up. This man, who was a record promoter, offered me, uh, wanted me to play one of his new records. And I, uh, he knew I could get it passed at the music meeting. And uh, he gave me a cherry pie and an apple pie. I didn't know it was payola. It was pieola. I don't know what the heck it was. They were very good pies. I uh, witnessed those days of payola. Program directors, music directors, getting television sets, cases of booze, cars. I mean... There was one guy that even had a wedding. Uh, I, an amazing thing happened. I had no idea. I was too young. Nobody really ever approached me. I could have. I could have probably followed it through, 
but I never did. I just told you that apple pie and cherry pie. That was it. Okay, so how long were you on? You went directly from WINS 1010 Wins to WABC, correct? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, I think that's pretty right. I think so how I, long were you at 1010 Wins before you went to ABC, and what was that transition about? Uh, well, it was two years, two years at WINS. It ended kind of unhappily. Uh, there was a DJ named Murray the K. And Murray wanted my hours. And I was a young guy. I didn't know how to protect myself. I was still, you know, my early, early 20s. And uh, Murray was a seasoned veteran, and he wanted those hours. And Which he, were uh, when, you're talking about quantity or specific time? Time. Time period. Which was when? Oh, I was on from, uh, I think, 10 to midnight in those days. 10 and to why midnight. did he want those hours? Because he was on at night later. And he wanted ah. the extra hours. So we wanted the hours. And he was very friendly with the sales manager, and uh, they made a deal. So I was put on a different time, and uh, eventually I left. But I was I was really forced forced out. So Murray uh, was it was not a happy moment in my life, and eventually, unfortunately, uh, it, it came to pass whereby he paid the piper for that, paid the piper with his with his life. Nothing to do with me, but right. that's another another story. He developed. Yeah, he got very sick. Right, but uh, staying with you, how did you did you quit INS or were you, were you recruited by ABC or did you look for another job? How did that transition happen? You know, just trying to think. I, I I don't think I was let go. I looked for another job. I looked for another job, and at the time, let's see. Then I went. I'm pretty sure I went to WINZ before I went. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that you know there's so much going on. With my okay. chronology, it's like word. But as you're talking, it sort of lights up a, a pinball, a little glimmer. Um, I got a job from Wins at Wins in Miami, Florida. That's where I went. So I went down to Florida. Now, I was pretty, I was known by that in Florida because New Yorkers, you know, a lot of New Yorkers are there. Right. And that's how they advertise it. So a guy named Rex Rand, who owned this radio station, WYNC. I think this is where this came in because we talked about right. Biscayne Terrace before. And I went down there and I spent that year. That's where this happened. While I was down there that year, I was recruited for WABC. That's when they were starting now to look and see what they wanted to do. They were becoming, they were the seven swinging gentlemen. Then they became the All-Americans. And I got the job there. I got the job there. Okay. The was Rick, was Rick Sklar already the program director? Yes, he was. Rick was, uh, my program director. I think when I got there, there was a guy leaving in transition, but Rick was my program director. And uh, he called me into his office one day and uh, I was on the air and he goes into his drawer and he pulls out a folder, one of these manila folders. And in that folder is a star. And he said to me, Brucey, this is Rick Sklarnow. This is your star. This is you from now on. And he gave me the break. I went on the air. Seven to ten. Okay. And so immediately you were at seven to ten. Seven to eleven. How, seven to 10. Right. How long after you went on ABC did the Beatles break? Oh, many years after, because I think I'd say two to three years later. I mean, I was starting to get records uh, from England with them before they broke, you know, with Swan Records, VJ, and we right. bring them to music meetings. And we all said, well, eh, a bunch of Brits. Make him believe they're the Everly Brothers and Chuck Berry. We, turned, we were very, very geniuses. We turned them down, right? Until 
we started noticing a lot of things happening uh, in Europe, riots and what was going on with the Beatles. They were growing popularity until eventually they were ready to come over here. And I got very involved with them. I introduced them at Chase Stadium with... Whoa, 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 whoa. This is what I want to hear. So let's slow down a little bit. <laughs> when the Beatles break in 64... Do you immediately, when do you sense that this is something different? This is just not another act. And other than the Beach Boys and the Four Seasons, pretty much going to wipe everybody else off the radio. Kind of a fun story. First of all, it took a little time. Uh, it was another great group, and they were making a lot of noise in Europe. But nothing really happened until they become part of Market One. Well, we find out they're going to be coming over here. And uh, uh, the, we started playing Beatle records. I remember... The very first Beatle record I got, I mean, officially, because I had other ones that were not official. Uh, we used to get bootleg records, of course. But officially, I got a Want to Hold Your Hand. That was delivered to me by an armed security guard with a promotion man with him. He had an attache. This is true. This is a great story. He had a uh, attache case handcuffed to his right wrist. I always remember the right wrist. Right wrist. And the uh, promotion man who escorted the uh, security guard said, you can't have what's in there. That's a record. The first Beatle record for you exclusively until 9 o'clock. I don't know what 9 o'clock was, but then I realized. At 9 o'clock, he hands me the record. Bob, I played that record eight times that night. Now, here's what happened. At 9 o'clock on AM radio, the atmosphere that the signal bounces off reaches pretty high. And by the time it bounces back, I'm reaching almost 40 states. That's where I got my national image. While that record is on, about a hundred and some odd radio stations, AM radio stations all over the country, are copying, recording the song that I'm playing. That was my exclusive. They knew exactly what they were doing. So, ha ha! The next day, being a pretty good businessman, right? I developed a thing called blocking out the sound. I, I recorded something called "Cousin Brucey Exclusive, Exclusive." Every ten seconds, I would play that thing on the air, destroying the record. Nobody can copy any more of my records. Exclusive, exclusive, Brucey exclusive. And uh, that was the end of the Beatle battle of the broadcast airways. That stopped that for a while. They grew tremendously in uh, popularity. Give you a good example. And this is, I'm going to, this is not made up. This is pretty close. Little Joey from the Bronx would call me two weeks before the Beatles came to New York. And Joey would say, hey, Brucey. Hey, man, we're digging your show because uh, really like it. Would you play a record for me and my girl? Her name is Susie. Play something by the Everly Brothers. Two weeks after the Beatles come, listen to this. Same kid. Hello, is this Sir Brucey? <laughs> uh, this is Sir Bob of Bronxshire of the Grand Course Shire. Would you play a record for me and my bird? Her name is Lady Suzanne. Now, <laughs> what I'm trying to say here is that everybody became an Anglophile. People started developing the accents. They talked to me, everyone was a Brit. They dress, they'd look, they'd get quaffed, they'd dye their hair, they'd do everything. And everybody was aware of the mother country. That's what the Beatles did. So the Beatles, when they came over, not only gave us music at that time, but they also gave us language, dress, quaff, and how we behaved ourselves. Everybody was suddenly speaking with clipped tongue. They all thought they were King Arthur. 
So what was your relationship with Brian Epstein and also the four individual Beatles? Well, I had a great relationship with them. Uh, Brian used to call me every once in a while. We'd have a nice talk. But the Beatles, I, I really got involved with. I met them at, uh, at Idlewild Airport that became JFK. We uh, were there at that first uh, press conference, which was kind of, that was a little rough. The uh, press corps was not nice to them. They were the boys were a little snippy, but the press corps was kind of out to get them because you know the press represented mom and dad. There was not nobody cared about the kids. There was no youth market, so to speak, at this time. Uh, then they came up. They're with me. There's a very famous picture of me with the boys broadcasting on W A Beetle C. Bob, listen. Oh, I believe you. I remember W A Beetle C. Right, chime time which I'm still doing today, by the way, which is really makes me very happy. So I got involved with them many times at uh, where they were staying in hotels, and I saw some wild, wild things in those hotels. I used to broadcast their arrival, say, to the Warwick Hotel. And uh, Rick Sklar, who was our program director, who has a book called uh, uh, Rockin' in America, I think it's called. Good book. and has a story about that. And my books have this story, too. He held me out by the seat of my pants. We didn't have any real wireless um, wireless uh, equipment in those days. So he held me out by the seat of my pants, my belt. He, I, if he let go, I would have been a lot of trouble. I was on like the eighth floor of the of Warwick Hotel. And I broadcast them arriving. The kids, 5,000, 6,000 supposedly, were herded across the street, 6th Avenue, by what is now the Hilton Hotel. And they were behind police barricades, horses, wooden horses. The boys came up the one-way street, uh, I think 54th Street, to be shepherded immediately into the Warwick Hotel. When that car came, and I was broadcasting, because every kid in that audience had the radio tuned to WA Beatles C. That was, that was their news. That was their news station. So they said, the boys are here. here comes, it's coming up the one-way. And I was, the horses went down across the street, the wooden horses. I also saw police horses being knocked out of the way by this this delusious tsunami of people coming across the street. It was like a tidal wave. And they came and they rushed the entrance at Warwick Hotel. Now, at the Warwick Hotel, some of them got through, and a couple individuals grabbed the boys. They used to grab their hair, hoping to get a snippet of hair. They grabbed shirts, hoping to get a piece of fabric. One grabbed a St. Christopher's medal. Great story. You want to hear a great story? This is, yes. This is how I got involved. You'll love this. This young girl, and I'll give you her name in a couple moments because I still am in touch with her, grabbed Ringo Starr. But she didn't. It was an accident. Right? It was an accident. She grabbed a St. Christopher's medal and had it. She didn't even know she had it. Put it in her purse or something. About an hour later, Ringo and Paul... And I think John was there, and I, I don't remember George there. They came in, and I said to Ringo, and this is, by the way, uh, there were this film of this, and there's a lot of, uh, I have audio of this. And I said, Ringo, I was very nervous. I was very young and very nervous, you know, a little insecure. with have the Beatles in front. I didn't know what to do. I knew we had a news story here. And I said, you don't look too good. That's what I said to him, foolish. But it was true. He says, I don't feel too good because of Brucey. Of course, somebody... Cop me St. Christopher's medal. I said, you're kidding. Yeah, my auntie gave it to me. And I said, stupidly, was it real gold? 
I mean, what a stupid thing to say. I mean, I was nervous. Come on, you know, it was like the moment that the, on the moment. And he says, "He, oh, I only wear real gold, cousin Brucey." That's how he answered me. He suddenly got his snippiness back. So I said, "Let me ask you something. If I can get your Saint Christmas medal back right away, Bob, the wheels started turning." Right. And you know what I'm going to say? I said, "Would you?" Uh, be willing to meet that person and give them a kiss. And you'd hear on outside, you'd hear the crowd, thousands of them screaming, right? And he said, yes, I want that St. Christopher's medal back. All documented stuff, by the way. And uh, I said, whoever found, I took it, whoever found the St. Christopher's medal, you're not in trouble. I want you to call me at this number as soon as I get off the air. And we're going to make arrangements for you to meet Ringo and get a kiss. And he's going to give you a thank you. Well, sure enough, I get off the air. The people went wild outside. You hear the audience going crazy. I get a call from Mrs. McGowan. I believe Mrs. McGowan, they lived in the Bronx. That's the mother of the child. The child's name, the young lady's name was Angela McGowan. Angela and I still talk once in a while. I think she lives down south somewhere. Well, Mother said, uh, my daughter, is she in any trouble? I said, no, Mrs. McGowan, this is, she's going to become a hero overnight. Uh, this is what I want you to do. Uh, I got a hold of a Rick Scar. We got a suite of rooms at the Hilton Hotel across the street, away from, away from uh, you know, the Warwick. And I said, I want you to bring Angie there, and she can bring a couple friends, right? I want to have friends. And at 8 o'clock, we're going to come and get you, or whatever the time was. Well, it happened. She got there with Angie, was scared sick with a couple friends. They shepherded her over very carefully to uh, our eighth floor where Ringo came in and Paul, and we reunited Angie, the St. Christopher's medal, and Ringo Starr. He talked to her on the air, hugged her and gave her a kiss. She then gave him the Ringo and the uh, St. Christopher's medal. There's the St. Christopher's medal story. And that really cemented my relationship with him and with Sir Paul. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Okay, did they see you primarily as the DJ or were you actually friends with the Beatles? No, I'd, I'd say mostly as a DJ. I don't, I don't think we've ever, I, I got pretty friendly with John, but you know, I never, I don't think we were friends, friends. I'd say business friends would be more like it. And they were very fond of me. Look, I made them a lot of money. They played their music, talked about them constantly. I mean, never stopped. I mean, you couldn't go anywhere in those days without one of the boys appearing. I remember, this is terrible, I guess I can say this. I remember going to the bathroom at some hotel and in one of the stalls, right? There was pictures of John and Paul right in there. You couldn't go anywhere without a representation of the Beatles. The Beatles arrived, but here's a very important postscript that I want the audience to know. The Beatles just did not happen, right? Because the Lord didn't come down and say, my children, I shall begot the Beatles to thee, right? You've been good. I'm giving you something. No, it happened with a lot of money, a lot of hype, a lot of promotion, a lot of sweat, a lot of guys like me promoting the Beatles. Did we ever think that they were going to become a sociological phenomenon, surpassing their music? No, no. We never thought nobody was that smart. We were not that smart. Never thought that would happen because by the time... I introduced them at Chase Stadium. I'm jumping again, right? I introduced them with, with Ed Sullivan at Chase Stadium. People were there really to be with them. The music was almost secondary because you couldn't hear it anyhow. Okay. Now, when the Beatles arrive, there's sort of a fight in New York to own the Beatles. Your nemesis, Murray the K, says he's the fifth Beatle. To what degree were you conscious of, conscious of that and trying to win the Beatle war? Very conscious. Now, first of all, the Beatles never liked this fifth Beatle because the fifth Beatle thing spread about four or five other jocks, quote, in the country. Uh, uh, they uh, adopted that moniker. They never liked that. Uh, the Beatle battle was tremendous. We became W.A. Beatle C. We put out cards and prizes. And I mean, we did everything. We gave away uh, tickets to their concerts. We gave away Beatles sweaters and mufflers and gloves, anything Beatles we would do. So we were very cognizant of the uh, uh, and aware of what was happening with the other radio stations. And uh, we were hell-bent on winning this one. And I believe we did. I think, well, first of all, the sheer size of this radio station, which I was always very proud of, 50,000 watts, clear channel. I mean, and the other stations in town could not even hold a candle to it. They were small. I used to call them teapots. Right? And they were tiny compared to this. So just our sheer power alone gave us the upper hand. Well, I just certainly remember because there were three. It was WMCA, WABC, and 1010 Wins. I was always an ABC guy. But as you say, wins went news. And then MCA faded out. We know that in radio, you live and die by the book, the ratings. Right. When you went on ABC, how were the ratings? Did the Beatles... 
uh, improve your ratings, personal ratings, and how are your ratings relative to the other jocks? Well, the ratings on WABC were always amazing. It took a little while to establish, but well, I don't know what, the, uh, there's a statistic that comes to my mind. One in four radios were always listening to Cousin Brucey. Now, if you think of that, you translate that, that is, cannot be done. It cannot happen, right? Uh, on the beach, if you went on any beach, Jones Beach, Brighton Beach, Coney Island. Oh, you, yeah. You, you try, oh, yeah. Yeah, you remember this. If you climbed over bodies, everybody had a radio. And I'd say four out of five radios were listening to WABC, even before the Beatles. Now, to answer your question, Beatles came on. Uh, did they improve the ratings? Oh, I mean, I don't know how many, the percentage, but tremendous. Because everybody was listening for a new Beatles record. New Beatles record. They knew we'd have them first. Just because of the size of this station, we got all the exclusives. And okay, you were bookended by Dan Ingram and Scott Muni. Did you become the star of the station? When did you realize you were such a star? Were you the star of the station and were the other jocks jealous? Well, you know, in those days, WABC, it looked like we were one happy family. That was never the case. We were a professional family. We were never a happy family. Some of the guys used to get together with others, but there was always professional jealousy. I never looked at myself as the star of the station, albeit maybe the executives and the salespeople did. Uh, I just did my job. I did my shows, and I loved my audience. I never had really time to really think about being a star or, you know, getting getting involved. All the television stuff came to me. The newspapers came to me. I did my Palisades Park shows, which gave me a tremendous, tremendous leeway on everybody else. Everybody loved going to Palisades Park. But so, you know, Bob, I never really, and to this day, this, this might sound a little corny on my behalf, I don't look at myself as a radio star. I, I'm Cousin Brucey. I'm doing my thing, and I'm keeping this audience, and I know they love me because I love them, right? That's that's as far as it goes. Now, if somebody is going to make a marble monolith of me uh, and put it in Times Square someday, great. I won't know it. Well, maybe I will. I don't know. I, maybe I will be able to come back. I'll make a deal if I can. Uh, I know how to make deals. But I don't know. I just do my thing, and I'm really not interested in, how do you say, being a star. In fact, it's kind of interesting. Anytime a, a young person comes to me, and I, I give a lot of advice. I'm, I'm an advice guy. I like to help people, right? And uh, if one of them says to me, hey, I want to be a, a recording star, that turns me off right away. I want to become a recording artist. I'll talk with them for an hour, right? But so the word the word star, I don't know what that means. I, I think I, I do my thing. I love it. I have my heart, my soul in it. And to this day, I am as excited, Bob, when that light says, Brucey, you're on the air, my little heart pounds, and I have that little butterfly in my stomach, and I'm so happy. I am happier today, matter of fact, on the air. I'm back at WABC. I'm home. Now, how did that happen? Wow, a complete circle. But I'm so happy this has happened because I have that feeling again. I haven't had that feeling in quite a while, but it's returned. It's good. Let's go back to the uh, 60s. Historically, even to today, radio is not a lucrative profession. So you were on the biggest station. You uh, had a huge audience. How were you doing financially? Very well. Well, remember, you know, when you're in this market, now, were you making millions? No. We were making 
20, 30 times more than anybody else anywhere in the country. L.A. does pretty well, maybe a little bit of Chicago. But New York City always was very good to me. And they were good to most of the guys. Today, can I skip to today for one minute? Of course. Today, uh, Cousin John, who bought this man, who purchased this mega station, this this monolith of, of power, right, offered me the best contract of my career. So I'm sitting here today saying to my wife, Jody, I got the best contract I've ever had. I've always done well. I mean, Cousin Bruce, he's very, very happy. Sold my radio stations, television stations, always made a lot of money with radio. So you're looking at a guy that's, that's why I'm smiling, right? Feel good. I can do what I want for any rest of my life. This is out of love. So I, I was very happy. They paid me well. Could they have paid me more? Well, of course, you always think you're worth more than you get. Right? But I've always been managing very well over my career. I mean, when I came back, I guess from Bermuda, I decided that day I'd look uh, that I'm never gonna be I'm never gonna be poor. I'm gonna have money, and I'm gonna make it doing what I want to do, being on the radio, and it and it worked. So, yes, I lived in Connecticut, certainly didn't have a driver's license and only wished I could go to Palisades Park. How did that come together? Oh, that was, I'd say next to the Beatles uh, introducing them at Chase Stadium, probably the most important part of my life. Um, while I was at, uh, I guess it was WINS, that's where it really started. Um, the owner, Irving Rosenthal, was very friendly with the owners and the executives of uh, the radio station. And I was on at night, and people, like you say, I was their, their boy. I was their, Rick gave me a star. I was their star. And he asked them if I could be, you know, come into Palisades Park and do shows. Well, long story short, I stayed at Palisades Park doing shows, producing them, putting them together, and emceeing them for over a decade and a half. And that was an important part of my life. To this day, I do Palisades Park reunions because the Palisades Park is ingrained in my audience. And no matter where that audience is, they know Palisades Park. They know it. And we used to be there on weekends, rain, storm, thunder, didn't matter, snow. We'd have that show. That show would go on. And we had every, every major star there. Lip-syncing, lip-syncing records. We couldn't afford to pay people to have a live band. So in those days... It was socially acceptable to lip sync. So I stayed there for a year and a half, and I love it. To this day, well, you, you can listen to my shows, and you'll always hear somebody saying, Brucey, play Palisades Park by Freddie Boom Boom Cannon, right? Of uh, course. Can you sing the commercial? Can you sing the jingle, right? Palisades has the fun. Palisades is the place. Come on over. You remember that? And this one? Of course. Take, say, you're someone you like. Take, let's see. Uh, Skip the bother and skip the fuss. Take a public service bus. Public service sure is great. Take you right up to the gate. So we said, and people still remember those commercials. Palisades uh, is a place we grew up. We all grew up. And I was uh, a babysitter for thousands of young people and adults. And they'd come over on those sunny Saturdays and Sundays, and we'd have one great free show time. Okay. Now, today's DJs, of course, the classic example being Ryan Seacrest. They're on the radio. They're doing television because traditionally you're only on the radio for like four hours. In your days at WABC, you were on the air for four hours, 7 to 11. 
What was the rest of your day looking like? Well, I would do uh, appearances. I even taught at New York University for a while. I taught. I uh, always delivered lectures. I'd be invited to schools. I'd be invited to people's homes for dinner, for lunch. I'd be invited to bar mitzvahs, confirmations, baptisms. I became part of a family. And this is when I realized that this is more than just a microphone and a, a guy who was a DJ. I never liked that word, disc jockey. Right? I'm, a, I'm a radio guy. I'm a broadcaster. Uh, I realized very early in my career that this was going to go much further than playing records right, and giving time and weather. This was going to become part of family. I was going to become part of people's lives. Okay, so if someone reached out, you would always respond? Just about. Uh, you know, but what I always say is 10% of the public is certifiably insane, literally should be institutionalized, but you never know which 10% Am it I, is. Why you think I'm in that 10%? Maybe. I don't no, know. No, no. You know <laughs> what I'm talking about. We've all had bad experiences. Uh -huh. So since you were so open, I would assume you occasionally had a bad experience. Oh, sure. I had, uh, listen, I've been attacked a couple times, uh, you know, physically, earth, earth uh, let's say life-threatening. Once there was a woman that decided that, I destroyed her life. I mean, we're, we're open to everything. But fortunately for me, it hasn't happened too often. This woman decided that I wrecked her life, that I was in the windshield of her car. Every time she opened her refrigerator, I was there. I mean, whoa, little what? Well, one day I'm up, uh, I think it was at NBC. They used to have these, uh, that's when I was on my NBC days. I miss was on, then I was on. Uh, interesting days. They used to have these uh, guided tours at Rockefeller Center at NBC. I don't know if you ever went on one of those things. And one day... I did. You know, one day, there's a woman outside the glass with a scissors, a large, not a little, you know, cuticle scissors, a large, son of a gun, turkey carving scissors, right? And she's going with her hands up in the air and using the scissors, threatening, and like pounding on the glass. Well, needless to say, we had her removed very quickly. That was the first time. The next time I met her again, I was doing a live performance. I was doing a live performance, and at the end of the performance, people come up for autographs. She came running on the stage with a knife, a knife. I literally grabbed her arm. I'm a pretty pretty big guy, and I have good reflexes. I'm a Brooklyn kid, you know, born on the streets. I grabbed her uh, wrist, held her back. Guards came over. We had the police come in. Her mother then came in to talk to me, and I have her name, but I didn't even want to mention her name, but I remember that name very well. Let me tell you, that was scary. Uh, the mother promised to have her institutionalized if I didn't press charges. Now, how am I going to press charges? This poor woman is so sick. I'm in her refrigerator. And maybe I've, I'd go in her refrigerator, but I wasn't in there. So I never heard from her again. The next problem. Oh, wait, I'm not done. I'm going to give you. I mean, it's not that, Bob, our lives are not easy. People think, oh, boy, they make all this money and they go on the air for a few hours and play the Beatles and uh, the Everly Brothers and, and uh, Elvis and they go home. No. I'm in the uh, uh, local supermarket with my kids. I'm a regular guy and I go out and people always, people 99.9, I just, hey, Brucey, hey, cuz, hey, cousin. Very nice to me, really nice. I'm walking down an aisle. My kids are on the side of me looking, you know, to buy things. And suddenly I look down the aisle at the beginning of the aisle, and I see a man in a leather jacket, kind of strange-looking, big guy. And I see him unzip his jacket, and he's walking towards me. 
and he puts his hand inside the jacket as if he's going to grab something. All right. He just pulled back. I said to the kids, leave now. Daddy, I said, leave now. I got rid of my kids. Quick. Comes the Lord. And he's walking towards me. And he's walking towards me. And he's reaching and reaching and reaching. And I'm ready to meet my maker. I figured I was going to finally see the golden microphone in the sky. Right? And he pulls his hand out of his jacket and says, hey, can I have your autograph on this? <laughs> so it's a, now, the damage was done. I don't know what my blood pressure went to. Let me tell you, I was kind of scared. I was kind of scared. So, you know, every single day, you know, when, you, when you're out in public, you never know. You said that 10%. That's a big percentage, 10%. You never know what's going to happen. So am I on guard? Yeah, part of me is always, always waiting for something. I watch. I my my love is there, but there's that maybe ten percent of me that's looking around for watching for that woman again with the scissors. I don't know. So it's it's not so let, a, let me not let easy. Me it's go, not an easy life. Let's go back to sixty five, sixty six. If I somehow got through to you, you would come to my house for dinner. If I liked you. Not only would I come to your house, I might even do a show from that house. I used to do shows. <laughs> if I like somebody, we'd go to somebody's house and they'd have a block party. People would come in and be wild. We'd do shows from that house. I mean, I wouldn't go to everybody's house. You know, that's impossible. We had tens and tens of how many hundreds of thousands of people listening at one time. But every once in a while, somebody would get to me and I'd, be, I'd befriend them. I still have friends from those days. To this day, listening to me on my shows today, that's still that still have my heart and I know them, you know, I look, I love my audience and there's a gosh, you know how many millions are listening, but there's always that little cadre, right. That have been with me all my life. And when I go to their house for dinner, I go to their weddings. I go to their kids baptisms. Yeah. They're part of my life. And that's what an audience has to be part of your life. Now, going back to the 60s, all young kids, teenagers had a transistor radio. And I vividly remember doing my homework with my blotter and the transistor right next to me. But the key night was Tuesday when you did the countdown. Silver how dollar you, survey. Yeah, how did you end up getting the countdown? Well, I guess I don't know, uh, program director decided that's where they can. Well, look, when I was on at night, you know, during the day, during the morning, you had uh, you know, commuters, you had people going to business, you had some of the moms, then it, then it became mom time, right? And then it became maybe coming back from business time. At night, that's when the kids were listening. So who would a survey, a silver, they're called a silver dollar survey, appeal to? Now, these were little, so if the audience knows, these were little slips of paper, maybe three inches wide by maybe six inches deep, right, length. And it would say, Top 40, and I'll have a picture of the All-American of the Year. It's what we would call. And I would have a printout of the top songs numerically listed in order of how they ranked, ranked of that particular week. On the back of that particular slip was an ad. Aha! They never lost a beat. They knew they could sell that because we gave out thousands of these things. They were in record stores, supermarkets, anywhere you can, you know, lay your lay a bunch of uh, papers down, they were, t they were taken. And people love them. People love them. I still get them uh, to this day, and I love to see them. They were really good. But I got it because they programmed it because they wanted the teens. I had all the teens. 
And it's so funny that morning drive time became the slot because I grew up when, of course, evening radio was the key. Now, as the 60s evolve, really things change. Culturally, things change musically. We have the British invasion. Then we have the San Francisco sound. As the sound evolves, are you still a fan of the music? Yes, very, very much. I love the music. Uh, the Motown sound. Of course, the Brit sound evolved amazingly. And I did a lot of television shows for ABC television. And NBC, too. I was sent over to uh, to England, and I did a lot of shows in those days talking and uh, being with the great stars of England. Uh, Motown, the same thing. San Francisco, you name it. The New York sound, the Los Angeles sound, Boston, wherever the sound was evolving, I was sent and I would go. And uh, I was always very cognizant of what was going on in music. I loved the music. I was never a hip-hop fan. As hip-hop started developing, I didn't understand it. I never really, I'll admit this, I never really understood jazz. Uh, I like jazz for a rainy day, very soft jazz, but I've never been a jazz fan. I never appreciated it. Uh, Maybe someday I will. I have plenty of time. But hip-hop, no, that's not what I wanted. It's not where I wanted the music to go. Uh, Not what I wanted. I wanted my R&B sound. I wanted to be comfortable with what I was listening to. And I wanted my audience to be comfortable with what they were listening to. Obviously, you can't stop progress. You know, I always said every decade of music, 50s borrows from the 40s, the 60s borrowed from the 50s. And there's always like a transition period of music from the preceding time. And it evolves and it it, it transforms into what what we're listening to. Well, so by the 80s, by the late 80s, it was getting a little bit out of my reach. I didn't really understand what was happening. Albeit, I, I like a lot of the music today. I enjoy listening to it because you know why? I hear a lot of my 60s in that music. I hear a lot of the stuff that I helped develop in what's going on today. Music evolves and it revolves and it makes a circle. It comes back. It, it changes quite a bit. So that's what the Beatles did. Beatles took our music of the 50s and they gave it a 60s flavor, you know, with a different uh, a different accent, a different feeling, and a different genius. They had genius in it. And by the end of the 50s and 60s, music, the whole industry was changed. Uh, technology changed. Distribution changed. Ah, there's a big word. Record distribution. Records People are still buying a lot of records in those days. Distribution changed. As distribution changed, it got larger. Radio stations got more powerful and uh, more powerful and reaching people. And we started getting wonderful producers and poets into uh, the music industry. And things started growing. So by the late 60s, we were really going to town. Everything was going well. Okay, so if one listens to your show, one of the features is you frequently have stars of the past come on the radio. Are there two or three of these people that are genuine friends that you've maintained a relationship, or is it more of a professional relationship? No, you become very close. Very good, very astute. Bob, you become very close to some of them. In fact, a lot of them. I become extremely close to Tony Orlando. I love Tony Orlando. Um... I'm gonna. I don't want to offend anybody because I have so many friends. I lost a dear friend, Leslie Gore. I lost her. You know, we've lost a lot of uh, great stars. I'm friends with uh, Charlie Thomas, the Drifters. I'm friends, gosh, Bobby Rydell, Dion. Huh. I'm friends with Paul McCartney and Ringo. Sir Paul, 
I mean, we're, we're hugging friends. We're hugging friends. We, uh, we, whenever we get together, whenever we see each other, in the days when we were allowed to get together, right, and see each other, we were very, very close. Uh, uh, Tommy James, you know, I'm going to let out, I'm going to leave out so many, but so many people that are on the air that are you, we call stars, are recognized stars, I've become very close to, and they've become very close to me. Now, talking about your personal life, you reach literally millions. Are those your friends, or do you have one or two, if any, best friends in your regular life other than your wife? Oh, yeah, I have a very dear friend. My, my One of my best friends, well, Joe McCoy is one of my very dear friends. Joe was program director of CBS FM, very important part of my life. Uh, Les Marshak, who was the voice of the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade that we're going to have again somehow. Virtual, it looks like. Uh, so I, I have a lot of very close friends of mine that, you know, we we uh, we get together with. And now, of course, Michael Michael and Barbara, uh, the Lurtzmans. So we, we have a, a very wonderful personal life, aside from my other personal life. See, I don't – I know it upsets my wife sometimes because we'll be eating uh, at a restaurant and people – automatically come over to my table and sit down because they know me. They feel I'm part of their families. It's not some bozo on the radio a thousand miles away, but it's somebody who's part of their lives. And I accept this. And I, I see Jody's uncomfortable with it sometimes. She's used to it now. But I love it. I love the idea that they feel that I'm really part of their lives. And I know I am. I know I am. So I accept this. It's an important part. And I think, I think that is what's so important when I go on the air, that people know I'm talking to them. You know, Bob, I, I'm talking to you right now, one-on-one. -on -one. Now, you know me for a little while. I think you listened to me for a few years growing up. And, That's an understatement. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But I talked to you personally when you were a kid. I never talked at you. I always talked directly to you. And I maintain that is a religion with me. It is one-on-one. -on -one. I can be on a radio station, and I know there are a lot of people listening out there, but I'm talking directly to that one person. It's personal. It's sensitive. That's what radio is. Now, you mentioned your present wife. Uh, your first wife, did radio and your success impact that relationship and cause it to end? Uh, I don't think so. It might have had a tiny bit to do with it, but no, I just think, I think, of my first marriage, we we outgrew each other. I don't think radio, if I go back and think about it, I don't think radio had anything really to do with that. At least I hope not. I never. That's funny. I never had that thought. Uh, Jody, my wife, is my partner. She's my, my best friend. She's on the air with me. The audience loves her. Jody gets a huge amount of email. <laughs> she, how, long, how long have you been together with Jody? Uh, we're married now 40, I think 43 years. And how did you meet her? A blind date. A blind date. Some friends of ours introduced each other to each other. And uh, Jody met me. I came out of the, I think it was CBS, I guess, came out of the radio station that night. And it was, it's been a romance ever since. And we went down to Little Italy. And it's, uh, Jody was born here in New York. And she was a teacher. And it's funny, I met her years before I met her. My brother was dating her. We keep things in our family. <laughs> I didn't know this. And he brought her up. Bobby used to uh, bring uh, his dates up to the radio station to make some points. 
you know, so he can have a good time. Right. And it was of cheap. Course. And it was cheap also, you know. So he brings up this uh, young lady who was a teacher, happens to be Jody, and I didn't know. And uh, she was teaching uh, out in Long Island City or something. And I asked her what she did. I always talk to people. When they come in the studio, I will always talk to them. I, you know, I said, I am so related to people that I cannot resist. So she said she teaches at, uh, I forgot the name of the school, in Long Island City. And I said on the air, I said, well, your teacher is here. Miss Berlin is here. And whoever's in Miss Berlin's class tomorrow, you do not have to do homework. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm excusing you from homework. Is that all right, Miss Berlin? She said, yes. Well, the next morning she walked into the school. Remember, four out of every five rec- of radios. Right. They went crazy. Well, little did I know, maybe 15 or 20 years later, Jody and I got together on this blind date and we were married. And I I remember that incident when she came up with my as my brother's date. Fortunately, she did not like my brother. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So as the 60s progress, the FCC changes the rule so you can't simulcast on the FM what you have on AM. As a result, all all the stations that you're talking about had an FM component. Now, you ultimately were on the FM a certain amount. Scott Muni went first, you know, there was WOR, then there was WABC FM. There was ultimately uh, NEW where Scott changed. Tell me about that transition. That was a a tough time. I I really didn't understand it. I didn't pay too much attention at the beginning. And then we saw numbers, you know, like you said before, how important ratings are. Numbers were eroding. And suddenly this... uh, Upstart called FM, which really was, has been around since, if you go back in your history, probably find it in the 20s. I mean, it, experimental and everything. World War II stopped the development of it. And then suddenly, we're now back in the 60s, and FM is starting to make some points. We were making all the money because we had the most listeners. FM was getting a uh, reputation of being a radio, radio without commercials. Right, radio without commercials for a good reason. They didn't have any listeners. Right, <laughs> but well, you know. So look, sponsors, clients buy when you when they know that cousin Brucey has listeners. Cousin Brucey had half of the listeners. I'd have half of the revenue coming in. Well, little by little, though, FM was developing, and they started getting numbers. AM was really starting to get hurt, and that's when I realized, you know, this was getting to a time when we have to think about changing our lifestyle. And uh, AM radio uh, started going down the tubes a little bit, terrestrial radio. I don't know if AM ever really recovered, but it's going to recover now. Oh boy, it's going to recover now, I'm telling you. All right. So uh, I started buying radio stations. I started, uh, I went to the CBS FM. All right. I did, I did a lot of things to uh, rejuvenate my career because all I cared about, I wanted to be on the radio. I didn't want to lose my audience. That audience was now growing up having kids. They were my kids. I was their godfather. <laughs> and that's what happened. So I was became aware of it slowly. 
Now, needless to say, the radio landscape has completely changed since the 60s. There were a handful of dominant uh, stations in every market. You could break a record regionally. Ultimately, that was changed by MTV. And today we have the Internet. Records tend to break first on the Internet and then go to radio. In addition, statistics tell us the younger generation tends not to be addicted to the radio as much as their forebears. So I ask you, obviously you will survive no matter what, but in general, what is the future of radio? I think the future of radio is terrific. I think, I think the audience has become so sophisticated that I don't know if they care if they're listening in a, a pod, an iPod, uh, uh, if they're listening uh, to a uh, internet radio or whatever, whatever whatever device they're listening to on today i think the audience wants content so therefore if you give them content no matter what device you're on whether it be am fm satellite if it be uh, a pod in your ear you know i have a uh, uh, i have a prediction in 50 years infants are going to be born with transistors and resistors behind the right ear and they're going to be able to think get me cousin brucey and that's all they need they blip, blip, they got it. A little silly, but that's what's happening today. You have Alexa. You have uh, Google Assistant. Uh, people listen to me now on Alexa. You have Siri. You can listen. To me. You have iHeartRadio. So there's so many ways of garnering communication. But the most important thing, I think, today is the audience is that sophisticated. They want content. Give them content. They will go. Whether it's AM, FM, or whatever it is, they will find you because they want to listen to something that they hear in their lifestyle. Okay. Now, MTV ultimately evolved, played fewer videos primarily for ratings, but then as the 21st century came along, uh, the people at MTV said, even though people are clamoring for the days of yesterday, we know that video is now an on-demand item. Okay, so we're not playing videos. Music is an on-demand item. You talked earlier. You talked earlier about your present show. That's more of a talk show. So I ask you, in addition to yourself, what works on radio today? Well, once again, I keep going back to that word content. I think what will work on radio today is that you give people what they want, which is not just playing a stream of music like a jukebox. I mean, that they can get anywhere. They don't need radio. And radio, when you say the word radio, radio to me means uh, communication one-on-one -on -one or to a group if you want to do a podcast type thing, right? That's fine. You're getting a special audience. But I believe my kind of radio and radio at large is uh, reaching out for people with ideas and with lifestyle, entertainment, and information. You put that in that pod, I think you'll always capture an audience. Uh, I recently, if I may, went back. I completed my circle. I went back to WABC Radio. I left there 46 years ago. Now, 46 years ago was a very different form of broadcasting. As I said, we did music, news. I did uh, weather and things like that. Very little talk, just uh, a lot of jingles and stuff like that. And also, there were no devices. You listened to a local AM band. You listened to it. And then FM came in. Today, we have such a... Uh, a variety of how to listen to communication on. And this is just the tip of the iceberg because it seems like every week something else came out. So I come back to WABC and what am I doing now? Am I doing the same thing? No, 
Am I doing some of it? Yeah, because people want it. You know how I, I decided what to do on my current shows in WABC? I used the internet. I used my Cousin Brucey Facebook page and other things that the uh, the uh, other the bulletin boards and things like that. And the, and the question was, what am I going to do with this show? So originally I said, you know, but in the press, I had a lot of press when it was announced I'm coming back to this to 77. I think I'll be doing uh, 50, 60, 70s, and 80s. Well, all hell broke, broke loose, Bob. They wanted, you're not doing 80s. No 80s for you. Everybody's doing 80s. The hell with the 80s. Percy, we want 50s, 60s, and 70s. We want your echo back. Ah, what? I don't want echo. It's 2020. Coming at 21, I'm going to do, hey, everybody. It's a, I don't want to do, I'm doing echo. Vox Populare. The people's voice is heard. They want jingles. I swear to God, I can play as many jingles as as records. They'll be happy. They want the records. Now, what does this tell you? They want the jingles. This tells you they want that connection to the past. Everybody today, we are in a bubble. We all want to escape. I am part of that escape, Bob. Right? My music is that escape. My jingles, my reverb is part of that escape. They want to go back. And they want to leave this bubble that we're in for those few hours. And when I go on the air today, I don't know if you've heard me yet, but when I open a show, first thing I say, cousins, here's the deal. You can listen, you can listen to me. There's no politics on this show. None. There's no talk about COVID. None. You have a problem that you really need solved and it's personal, I'll talk to you. But we're not talking politics no matter what. And if anyone talks politics, you're out. And I said, now, if you can't go by those rules, go get some ice cream somewhere. Leave me alone. And that's what I do. And I go on, and everyone loves it. They love the idea to escape our streets right now. And, Bob, you are as, you are like I am. You would like to run away a little bit too. We all would. Okay, speaking of running away, you're now on the air one time a week. What does the rest of Brucey's week look like? <laughs> I wish Jody was here to answer that. I go shopping. I go to the supermarket. I have been in the pharmacy more than I've ever been in these four months in my, in my whole life. I don't know what we're doing. We're buying. I have no idea. We're in the pharmacy. So what we do is it's home. Jody and I go for walks. We love to, I love to hike. I keep in, I keep in great shape. I really, I'm in good shape. Still feel very powerful. That's how I stay young. I, I watch what I eat. I don't drink too much. Uh, I miss visiting friends. I miss the personal relationship of hugging. I'm a hugger. I'm a toucher. I like touching, touching people. I like skin. Right? We can't touch anymore. That is breaking my heart. Uh, I watch television a lot. We're watching series. We stream. I go on my computer constantly. I answer my mail, which takes me a huge number of hours. The emails are great. Everybody's requesting. This is from last Saturday's show. I don't know if you can see it. Wow. No, it's it's. I'll, I'll flip it. For by those the people, again, these are printed out emails, a huge stack. That's from one day. What am I going to do with these things? Am I going to answer? You know, you know I'm going to answer everyone. I'm going to play everyone they're requesting, but it's going to take me Four Christmases. <laughs> it's it's but so that's my point. The response is terrific. People want content. They want to find what they would like to listen to. I'm an escape. I'm a, I have that bridge, and uh, we have three hours now once a week. 
Uh, we'll see what happens with that. I, uh, I have a feeling. Let's go back to the vault for one more time. How did the four seasons end up doing your jingle? I have no idea. However, all I know is I received a phone call from Bob Gordio and Frankie Valley, And they said, I have a present for you guys. I have a present for you. About a week later, they came up with a five-inch reel of reel-to-reel tape. A lot of the audience might not remember what tape is. That little, uh, it's on a plastic reel, round reel, and it's like maybe a quarter-inch thick, and you played it on a, a tape recorder. They brought me this thing, and they said, play, this is for you. It's a gift. That's how it happened. They gave me a gift. Now, that gift has followed me everywhere I go. No matter what, if I even do a guest spot on a station, if I do interviews, you probably have that song. The Four Seasons of singing, right, Go, Go, Cousin Brucey. That was a beautiful gift. How would I came about? You know, I never really found out. That's a very good question. Brucey, this has been wonderful. You're a fount of knowledge. In addition to telling your story, there's a lot of wisdom. I learned certain things. Uh, you know, I love talking to you. I look forward to talking to you in the future. This has just been wonderful. Well, listen, this is only part one. You think you heard stories? Ha! <laughs> listen. I, I look I, forward I, to hearing more stories. Well, i got to tell you. We'll do part two. Bob, really, I know about you. Your reputation really precedes you. You have a great great reputation. I congratulate you. I love to meet people who love broadcasting and you are a broadcaster and I'm thrilled to be part of your your family now. Well, to hear that from Cousin Brucey himself, I'm quelling. It's like unbelievable. Quelling, that's Greek. I know that word. <laughs> Listen, I'm not going to let you do any more shtick right now. Till next time, this has been Bob Left Sense. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you looking for the perfect move-in-ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below-market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in-ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Do you love fashion? Do you love getting compliments on how well you're dressed? Are you always seeking the latest trends? Then we're talking to you. BostonProper.com is your fashion destination and the only place to go for all those nods, head turns, and new styles. No matter the day, season, or occasion, Boston Proper has what you're looking for. Sophisticated, confident clothing designed to flatter and get noticed. So visit BostonProper.com now and start creating your perfect wardrobe. Boston Proper. Wear it like no one else.